Welcome back to the program. For those that didn't live through the 50s and early 60s, even Mad Men gives us a pretty clear idea of so many of the changes that were impacting the nation and the culture. The post-war period freed up Americans. We were no longer bound by the needs of the war and the depression that preceded it. Television, labor-saving appliances, medical breakthroughs, and a new sense of tolerance would begin to change America. My guest George Martson argues that the 1950s marked the end of an era, that we became a much more pluralistic culture, and that the way in which the political and social leaders of the time approached those changes has in fact given rise to many of the problems and divisions we face still today. George Marsden is a professor of history emeritus at Notre Dame, the author of many books, including Fundamentalism in American Culture. It is my pleasure to welcome George Marsden here to talk about his newest work, The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, the 1950s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. George Marsden, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. First of all, explain what you mean by the American Enlightenment. Yes, that's a good uh, starting point. Uh, I I use the... uh, title Twilight of American Enlightenment, because I thought the the 50s were the last uh, stage of a development that starts with the American Revolution, when the the Enlightenment shapes the fundamental American ideals, ideals of uh, freedom, ideals of trust in uh, human rationality, uh, new ideals for government, And uh, usually the American Enlightenment was uh, friendly also to Protestant religious ideals, that Protestantism and the uh, American Enlightenment ideals uh, didn't always agree on everything, but they they pretty much uh, were allied in shaping American culture. And and that uh, set of ideals is still pretty much intact after World War II, and people are trying to revive them, even though in the meantime, Darwinism has come on the scene. Uh, People have turned from uh, faith in natural law toward uh, pragmatism. Uh, Nonetheless, they still believe that uh, there should be a a single set of ideals that all right-thinking people should more or less agree on, and that uh, the way to form the culture would be to integrate everyone into uh, a common set of uh, consensus ideals. And of course, beginning in the 1950s, we see in many ways in reaction to what the country had just been through with the war and the depression that preceded it, a sense of wanting to break out, a sense of greater individualism. Talk about that. Yes, well, uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, individualism at the time. The uh, the the great uh, fear uh, at at the time was conformity. And uh, I remember going to college during that time, and we all read uh, Catcher in the Rye, and everybody talked about uh, nonconformity as as the ideal. Uh, and there were uh, lots of books that were describing. Uh, the dangers of modern civilization uh, in the death of the salesman, the organization man. Uh, you mentioned uh, Mad Men and it is, is a great uh, recapturing of uh, the sense that modern culture, despite all its progress and 
uh, all the things that could be done was was uh, in danger of being hollow at the core. Uh, so uh, there were attempts to sort of you know, to get back to uh, sort of the true American individualism that really had some sort of heart to it, rather than uh, this empty conformity that that, that people were uh, perceiving. And what it really did is it it bifurcated the culture in so many different ways that while there was much more of a a common or as you talk about it a consensus culture it created lots of different cultures within the american framework of that period yeah well yes yeah, so there there were uh, a uh, a lot of well just in fact because america was so diverse and so ethnically diverse and religiously diverse there were a lot of uh, subcultures, but also the ideal uh, was that uh, people should think for themselves, and often that meant uh, getting away from your subculture and uh, joining in the uh, American mainstream, so so that uh, the, the message was uh, you, you, you shouldn't be shaped simply by traditional identities, but you should uh, be thinking for yourself and be an independent uh, autonomous person. One of the things that went along with that was the beginnings of, and it's certainly you know, it's certainly an issue that we still deal with today, but the beginnings of a greater, to- greater tolerance to those that might be different than the conformed norm. Absolutely, and, and the, the great uh, crusade of, of, of the liberal culture of the, of the 50s uh, was the civil rights movement, and uh, that uh, provided the template for uh, pushing for tolerance in in, uh, in all sorts of, of of areas, and and that certainly was um, one of the, the the very positive kinds of things that was going on uh, at the time. Talk about what you see as some of the negative things that came out of this. I guess the the major negative thing was it didn't. Uh, it didn't work, and the, the the 1960s demonstrated that the culture was a lot more fragmented than, than than it might have appeared to the cultural leaders of the 50s. Cultural leaders of the 50s were almost all uh, white male. There were a few uh, women who can make it into that uh, into that group, but the um, just as the um, the word man, um, man you know, it was assumed to be uh, inclusive, but it, but it really meant that, that men would be in, in, in the leadership. So there, there was an assumption that uh, there should be a, uh, a single uh, cultural center uh, that uh, then, then uh, different groups, even you, you, rec- you recognize diversity by... Uh, allowing them to come into that center, but in the 60s, what what, what happens is it, it turns out that uh, there's a lot of people that aren't very happy about uh, the center, and and people start uh, different individuals in the counterculture take very seriously the idea: be yourself, think for yourself, autonomy, and the like, and and they 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 really reject the central parts of the culture. In the meantime, you get um, subgroups emerging, uh, 
saying uh, we don't really, we're not really, we haven't really been represented. So the 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 um, I guess the, you know the basic weakness is that the consensus ideal uh, was to some ex- it, it, it was an illusion to some extent that everyone could be brought into uh, sort of a stand on the same basis. Part of, though, what shaped the culture prior to the 60s was the idea of a common, a common authority, and that's what really began to break down, that it wasn't the same kind of authoritarian culture that had preceded the 60s. Yeah, well, that's, that's the... Um, Walter Lippmann, who, who, who was one of the wisest commentators of the, from the 20s through, through the 50s, uh, identified that issue and and said, well, we used to have natural law, and, and but we now we don't have any foundation for these ideals. And so, how do we uh, how do we convince people uh, to to be on the same page if there's no if there's no basic foundation? Uh, but most of the cultural other mainstream cultural leaders. Disagreed with Lippmann and said, "Well, it's, you know, reasonably enough, said it was impossible for us to get back to uh, a common natural law. We simply have to uh, do the best we can with with with, with problem solving." But the, the the irony of that story is that um, in the civil rights movement itself, uh, one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. appeals to is natural law. That in in the uh, letter from the Birmingham jail, what he's saying is there are uh, moral principles out there that everyone ought to agree uh, with and uh, the civil rights needs to be uh, based on some foundation other than practical problem solving. Uh, there has to be natural law. And that that still carries enough resonance with uh, enough people to to be one of the factors that, that, that helps the civil, civil rights movement. But, uh, but since then, it's been very, you know, looking for that kind of common basis in, in a shared moral law is, is becoming, has become uh, pretty much uh, impossible because people see morality as uh, defined by local communities and, 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 and local interests. Is part of the problem, though, the way in which attitudes towards religion itself have changed during this period? Talk a little about that. Yes. The, well, that, that's the other thing that um, I, I try to do, and, and I, I uh, do largely the history of American uh, religion, and uh, the striking thing about the 1950s is it's a time of uh, religious revival at just about every uh, level, from the Sawdust Trail healing revivalists to uh, Catholics, uh, 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 Jewish communities, uh, everything in between. But uh, it's the mainline Protestants, the big Protestant, traditional Protestant denominations that still have the public, the public voice. And presidents are expected to uh, speak in broadly Christian terms, which is uh, essentially broadly Protestant 
terms. And there's a lot of uh, consternation in the Protestant community when Kennedy is nominated for president, whether uh, the American tradition can can really survive well with, with, with someone who's not a Protestant. So it's very striking that uh, in this era of uh, a lot of religion, uh, Protestantism still has a very a very privileged sort of sort of position. Of course, that would change over time as as the culture would become more diverse and more secular. Yes, yeah, yeah yes, and and the culture becomes more diverse. Uh, it becomes more secular, and and also uh, it becomes more clear that Protest that, that uh, there are a lot of different kinds of Protestants, and there are very conservative Protestants. And uh, as, as well as the mainstream uh, sorts of Protestants. So one of the stories uh, is that once the old Protestant establishment begins to fade in the 1960s, and people are talking about the the, the uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment, and Protestantism really loses a lot of its uh, cultural authority by the 70s and the 80s. Into that vacuum uh, rushes the religious right, which comes uh, with a much more aggressive kind of uh, conservative Protestantism and says, we ought to be uh, reclaiming the, our, our Protestant heritage, or our Christian heritage, you know, they call it Christian heritage, uh, to uh, you know, go back to the founding fathers and, and, and the like. And they... they uh, they see the founding as uh, <clears throat> probably a lot more Christian than it actually was, but uh, they are trying to, uh, in a sense, recapture the 50s when religion was very prominent in the public sphere, uh, but now they, they have a much uh, more narrow kind of uh, religious ideals that they want to uh, make the basis for national policy. How much of that, though, comes less from religion and more from taking advantage, a lot of the, these fundamentalist leaders trying to take advantage of the fear that was pervasive among many of those in the culture that were afraid of or responding to how much change was taking place. Well, it's it's both, uh, that, that the, uh, the backlash against the counterculture uh, the, you know, uh, the um, uh, so-called silent majority precedes the, the religious movement and, and the moral majority, so that the moral majority is building on those sorts of uh, resentments. And uh, I think I, I think there are gen- certainly there are genuine religious motives in uh in what the religious right is is promoting but they're also in alliance with uh conservative politics and uh, conservative politics are using religion for political advantage and the religious people uh are buying into that because they see it as uh for you know religious advantage so 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 there are Sort of pragmatic reasons to you know that, that they're building on these fears and and, and the like, as well as uh, very principled reasons that a lot of people have that they 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 think 
there are major moral concerns that, that, that have to be addressed. One of the arguments you make is that liberal intellectual and political leaders made a mistake in not realizing the nature of these changes and essentially the vacuum that it would create. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I made a mistake. I, I, I guess I, I'd be more sympathetic and say, yes, they made a mistake, but nobody could, in, in 1960, could really see what was on the horizon. Uh, and, and, and that's one reason why I think it's so fascinating to go back to just before this cultural revolution and see what the world looked like and the ways in which it looked pretty coherent and people assumed, as they always uh, do, that uh, the future would probably be a good bit like the past. And it turns out for them, uh, the future uh, has a lot of disjunctions from the past and the, the, and, and uh, so it, 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 I found it just fascinating to go back and look at this lost world and, and get a sense. What did it look like to the best observers, the sort of what they called the middle brow observers? How did they perceive what was going on? And then think about that in the light of uh, what we've experienced uh, since then and, and how much more diverse and fragmented the culture has, has become. And yet you argue that there might have been ways that the culture could have maintained its diversity, even its pluralistic and secular diversity, and still worked harder to find common ground, common themes. Talk about that. I think what, 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 what we have to do is think about how do we do those things that you just said, that, that deal with uh, genuine diversity uh, I think I think uh, clearly since the 50s we've become much better at uh, dealing with uh, a lot of kinds of diversity. I think there's still an issue in the culture of dealing with religious diversity and that uh, there needs to be equal treatment of uh, religious perspectives with secular perspectives. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it, 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 it doesn't, but that... Uh, that's one way of being more consistently uh, uh, pluralistic is, is to recognize that uh, deeply held religious beliefs are going to have some public consequences. And so how do we uh, allow all sorts of people to participate at the table, uh, whether they're religious or secular? And there shouldn't be prejudice against people just because they're secular nor should there be prejudice against people because their views are are religiously held. So I think uh, we need to recognize that diversity. And then the other side is uh, how in such a diverse society can we find some common ground to, uh, you know, what, what, what can we agree on? And, 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 and that's, uh, that's a, a, a very difficult uh, question where where we, uh, I, th I think we find common ground, uh, especially in that we, we do all uh, partake to some degree in this Enlightenment tradition. And even though uh, it's, it's faded in, in, in many respects, 
nonetheless, there are ideals there, ideals of uh, tolerance, ideals of equality, uh, ideals of uh, individual opportunity. Uh, all these ideals are, are inherited from, from the Enlightenment and uh, pretty much across the board of American diversity, there are people who still share in those ideals. So I think we can still uh, learn from that tradition even uh, in, a, in, a, in a much more fra culturally fragmented setting. I mean, I guess the broader question is whether we can find those common set of shared values and shared beliefs without any kind of common authority to go along with it. Yes, well, that's that's the problem. That's where we are. Uh, there is no common authority. It's not possible, in my mind, to go back to imposing a common authority. We we can uh, we can appeal to whatever commonalities there are in human nature itself. I think human in all of us have, for instance, a common sense of justice. And, and people recognize that uh, th there there is a right and a wrong, and and uh, they, they they when when their own rights are threatened, they they have a they they may profess to be relativists, but they're very uh, dogmatic about this is right and that's wrong. So there's a, there there are some common human traits that that can be appealed to, but then I think there are also uh, historical traditions that we can uh, learn from, and uh, the culture can, uh, can 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 draw from, even though uh, the original authorities for that tradition uh, are no longer uh, shared by everyone. Uh, nonetheless, uh, some of it, has, some of that tradition has has does have some self evidently. Uh, beneficent uh, implications, and uh, we can say, right, we, we, uh, we, we do agree that uh, there, there should be equal opportunity for, for everyone in, in, in principle, and uh, most people can, uh, can see that in principle, even though in practice they, they don't always follow that. Isn't that to some extent what Francis is trying to do now with respect to a social justice agenda? Yes, yes, I, I, I think so. Uh, that that uh, th that he is drawing on the Catholic tradition, but but then uh, pointing out that this has uh, commonalities with lot uh, with lots of things that people in other traditions, in fact, do affirm. Talk a little bit about how you see this. None of us has a crystal ball, of course, but talk about how you see this playing out at this point. As you say, we're, we're not going to go back to the kind of common authority that we were talking about before. Where does this go from here, in your view? Well, I, I, I think there needs to be recognition of the problem and clarity as to what the problem is and and how things have changed and 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 that uh, that's the kind of thing historians can can uh, offer some uh, some some guidance on and then I think uh, uh, you need to to look for 
venues in which the problem can be addressed. I think, for instance, that uh, that higher education ought to be one area where uh, people can talk about how do we recognize a plurality of voices, uh, what do we have in common, uh, but what are our different, you know, taking our differences seriously as well. And, and in principle, education shouldn't be a place where, where that can be done more or less dispassionately. You can't really do that very well at all in politics because politics becomes uh, pretty much just shouting other, other people down. Uh, so uh, education is one uh, place to do that in the media. I think uh, the mainstream media is, uh, is getting better, actually, at recognizing that we have to include lots of voices. And, 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 and I think, uh, you know, you're a media person, uh, that's the kind of thing that, that, that really needs to be done, to say, how do we, uh, you know, let, let's give the people we disagree with uh, a hearing, let's, uh, in, in a dispassionate way, try to, to, to talk through these issues rather than having the usual uh, you know, kind of, um, of, of, of public uh, shouting matches. The other side of that is that we are going through a period today, arguably, that is even more dramatic in terms of change taking place and that it is creating an awful lot of anxiety and an awful lot of fear and creating, once again, yet another vacuum for those that would exploit that fear to create more and more division. Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, I mean, we're, we're still, in a way, I, I, I think, recapitulating the, uh, the themes that, that developed in the 1980s of, uh, you know, Trying to uh, trying to fill that vacuum, trying trying to uh, sort of impose greater cultural unity than than, than we're actually going to, to find. Uh, as a historian, you know, one always um, realizes that you can't you can't really predict very well. Just as I said in 1960, no one predicted uh, what would things look like by 1970. Or in, in uh, you know, 1985, no one predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. All of a sudden, things happen, and and and, and history takes a turn that that no one quite expected. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 really hard to to say exactly where we're going. George Marsden, his book is The Twilight of the American Enlightenment: The 1950s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. It's just out from Basic Books. George, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 